Jordan Erickson. Where is that young man? Uh, we have here this morning uh, a frame, and inside that frame is a formal recognition that we would like to give to you. Uh, it's a recognition for a ministry license through the EFCA. Yeah. We praise God for uh, how he has worked and continues to work in Jordan's life. Uh, we shared this in our last congregational meeting, uh, that it has been the elders' aim to consider Jordan for a larger pastoral role at our church. And the timeline uh, went something like this. By uh, May, we would provide a job description, uh, which we have. We posted it out on the bulletin board for your viewing. It's a position of a pastor of students and families. Uh, in June, we'll have our search and vetting team put him under the bright lights of interrogation. Uh, like we would for anyone who would be brought on for pastoral role, Jordan it will be going through the appropriate uh, vetting process of asking difficult questions of his life and making sure that he's a qualified man. And then third, in July, we'll have opportunity for a town hall Q&A, as well as a congregational vote at the end of the month. So please uh, keep those uh, items in prayer. Uh, a couple of things I'd put before your attention, uh, a lot of the work that you've seen done up here on this stage in relation to the, the remodel has been uh, the kind, diligent, faithful work of a whole team. And I'd like to publicly recognize it and thank a number of them now. Uh, Ed Langenfeld, Tim Clemenson, Dan Vyth, Bruce Smith, Randy Moser, Levi Duth, Alan Weiner, Josh Johnson, Dan Bostrom, John Lauer, Daryl Gucci, Monty Hansen, Chuck and Jane Waite, Mike Bostrom, Ken Shepard, uh, Wes Jovic, <clears throat> and uh, there was one individual, Bruce Toffness, who I forgot to mention in the first service, as well as our staff, Jordan Erickson, Dave Bostrom, and uh, a special uh, thank you to Barb Grinder and their leadership and service. Let's give them a hand. It takes many members and many parts of a body. Uh, to faithfully serve the local church in a, a wide array of areas. And that's why I have mad respect. That's a good thing, Patch, for Patch in the back here who's helping us with slides. Thank you, Patch, for helping us today. Yeah. I don't know if he wanted me to mention that, but I did. And he'll get over it. Uh, I, I think that's all I had to share. I can't remember. Let's get into it. Uh, it is good, brothers and sisters, it is good to worship with you this morning. This morning, we conclude our series on the character of the church by considering our text and our sermon title, The Remembering Church. Communion, uh, as we will see, 
is the practiced ordinance that Jesus instituted for his followers. Those in that upper room on that first night, and for those of us here today. Protestants have often elected to use the term ordinance rather than sacrament, because sacrament has traditionally been used to communicate sometimes an earning of merit or favor or grace, but we believe Jesus is enough and that he has earned all grace in our place through his work, his death and resurrection. So communion won't earn you anything with God. So what exactly is all this communion stuff about then? Why do we need to remember? Well, my main point this morning is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ observe and need communion. Well, here's how one musical artist, Jelly Roll, would paint it. That's his name. He says this, Because I'm only one drink away from the devil, and I'm only one call away from home. Yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle. I guess I'm just a little right and wrong. Mistakes I've made, I paid for them in cash. Walked a million miles on broken glass. I'm feeling like I'm fading. My heart's been slowly breaking. What we find in these verses is the very human experience of navigating the life that we've been given. You see, we too, at times, are caught in the middle of circumstances potentially one poor decision away from devilish disaster or one good decision away from the safety of home. As faithful followers of Christ, we feel a little right and wrong as we understand our forgiveness in Christ, but still see sin in our thoughts, our actions, and our words. The Christian life is not immune to fading, to a heart that may grow dull and slowly break, I submit to you, this is the fundamental reason why we need communion. It's why we've been given communion. So that when our lives and our hearts are singing songs like this one, when we are in that moment of temptation or desire or trial, We are to remember and to look to Christ. Well, regarding communion, I'd like us to ask and answer two questions. The first question is this. Why do the people of God, why do they observe communion? Why do we do this? Well, if you haven't already, please turn to Luke chapter 22. We'll be in verses 14 through 20. And as you're turning there, that is a fundamental question that we have to ask of much of the things that we do of church. Now, many of us have been around the block long enough to find out there are things that we do and we ask, why do we do this when we come to a local gathering? And oftentimes the response is, I'm not sure, that's just the way we do it. And that's not necessarily a good answer. So the question of why we observe communion has to be rightly asked. Because we can't fall into the trap 
And I know I threw a number you off this morning by having communion, and it's not the first Sunday of the month. But, but we have to ask. We can't fall into the trap of just showing up on a communion Sunday and just say, it's communion Sunday. We have to ask, why? What is the purpose of it? Well, Dr. Luke in chapter 22 uh, documents for us the institution of the Lord's Supper. Would you read with me, please, Luke twenty-two fourteen through 20. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, in each of the Gospels, we come to the narrative description of Jesus spending his last moments with his disciples in an upper room. What were they doing up there? Well, Jewish teaching and tradition calls it the Passover. Turning back the clock, Israel would celebrate God's care for them. When they were enslaved in Egypt, God rescued them. God's judgment would come one night and kill the firstborn of every family in that land. However, God made this promise. Those who believe in me, those who fear me, Those who love me, on that night, they will take a lamb and they will sacrifice it. And if God saw the blood of that lamb on their doorpost as he came through, he would pass over that home. They would be kept. No condemnation. No judgment would fall on them. This horrific night and Passover would be the final straw that would see the Pharaoh of Egypt send Israel out of the land free. Exodus 12, 14 says this, This day, Passover, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So two things would be happening during the time of Passover, as it was observed throughout generation and generation and generation. First, there would be a bloody mess of a lamb. As a lamb was sacrificed every year as the Passover was observed, faithful Jews were continually reminded that innocent blood had to be sacrificed and shed for God to pass over them, to not bring judgment. So soberness, reverence, and seriousness are the expected dispositions as they were reminded of the cost. 
Second, there was a feast. We laugh now about how in our Christian traditions there seems to be food at literally everything we do. And just so you know, your potlucks are approved biblically, I think. A feast is an intimate way for the people of God to come together in remembrance, in relationship, in community, with a nod to thankfulness and gratefulness. The word feast shows up in our English Bibles about 150 times. And each feast directed to and in collaboration with the Lord contains these two parallel truths at the same time. Soberness and reverence but great thankfulness and celebration at the same time. So in our passage, verse 15 tells us that this Passover feast is what brought Jesus to the upper room with his disciples. And as we come to, as New Testament readers, there's a little bit of a shock in our passage. Jesus and his friends sacrifice a lamb, they observe this memorial and this feast, and Jesus teaches them and us, this one critical truth. Jesus is the better Passover lamb. Now, it's not called the Lord's Supper by coincidence. It's considered a feast. Just as Israel feasted on the sacrificial Passover lamb, so too does the body of Christ feast in a way. The body of Christ feasts on Christ's words and promises. Jesus is the new and better Passover lamb. It was in fact pointed to first by John the baptizer. If you remember in John 1, the first words out of his mouth, he says, Look, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus, in our passage in this upper room, he discloses his fulfillment of those words. He's the lamb. Now, Jesus doesn't offer himself physically to eat. There are some faith traditions who've come to hold this view, but I don't believe it's what Jesus himself teaches. Look again closely at verses 19 and 20. Jesus sits around a table with his friends, and he, he picks up the bread. He says, this is my body, he says in the text. It represents, it symbolizes his body that will be broken. He, he doesn't take a literal piece of his flesh and offer it up to eat. But after they eat this bread, this symbolic bread from the table, he picks up the cup and he says the same thing in our verses. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He doesn't offer his literal blood, but says the fruit of the vine that's in the cup represents, it symbolizes his blood that will be shed as the new Passover lamb. It was soon after this feast in the upper room that Jesus would be betrayed and handed over to be beaten and crucified. On that wooden cross, he would not only suffer the punishment of Roman soldiers and religious hypocrites, but the scriptures say that Jesus would suffer the wrath of God. God would pour out his judgment on this innocent lamb. Jesus would die in the place of guilty sinners. Just as Israel clung to the protection of the blood of the doorpost on that terrible night long ago over in Passover, 
so too now the people of God cling to the protection of blood, but the blood of Jesus. Now, we don't sprinkle that blood on our doorposts, on our home, but rather, by faith, in a way, we sprinkle the blood of Christ over the doorposts of our heart. As God passes over, as he looks down at us, he sees blood, the blood of Christ and his promises. We cling to Jesus, and there is no judgment for those in Christ. Jesus' body was broken, and his blood was shed in our place. He is the better and the truer Passover lamb. But there was something in verse 20 I want to point out that I think is critical as it relates to communion. And it's that Jesus connects us to the new covenant. Look at the end of verse 20 again. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God in his purposes has always communed with his people through covenant. Now, I know that's not a word that we use often, but it's one we need to understand. And covenant is this idea of a promise relationship, a relationship established by, yes, a stipulation, but promises. So God had made promises to a number of people throughout the scriptures, and despite their sin, despite the sin of Adam and Noah and Abraham, Moses, Israel, King David, despite all that, God is faithful to his covenant relationship, to those promises that he made to those people. But he would give a a message to those prophets of the Old Testament. Yes, there will be consequences to your sin, but someday a new covenant, a new promise will come. A new promise relationship will be established. So you can read in the Old Testament that 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 new covenant that is to come, God promises to put his law in their heart. They will stay with me, he says, and I will be with them forever. Jeremiah 31 and 32. Someday, God says, I will put my spirit inside of you. I will enable you and cause you to walk with me and obey in a new covenant. I'll give you a new heart. Ezekiel 36. Jesus reveals in that upper room that the new covenant, the new promise relationship has been established through him. Through his sacrifice of his body and blood to pay for the sins of people. By faith. By faith, they and us would be a part of that promise. All the prior covenants, in a way, they proved to be a shadow pointing to the better mediator, the better covenant, the better savior, the better reality, Jesus in us and with us. So verse 20 of our passage tells us as we come to the Lord's Supper or communion in remembrance, we come remembering the new covenant relationship that we have with him. The author of Hebrews in chapter 9 says it this way. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive that promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeemed them. So why do we observe, celebrate, practice communion? Because Jesus is the better Passover lamb and because he connects us to this new covenant. This promise from on old of relationship with God through faith in him and his gospel. 
And, you know, I think sometimes we may wonder how to apply that. Okay, I, I get we observe communion because Jesus is the Passover lamb, because it connects me to this promised relationship. But what do I do with that? What's, what's the, you know, feet on the ground? Well, I think sometimes the best application is Scripture itself. And Paul, he wrote to a church in Corinth that was just full of sin and abuse. They were messed up just like the rest of us. And he says this to them in 1 Corinthians 5. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. <laughs> For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In short, live as though the Passover lamb died for you. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ. He satisfies hearts. God help us to live holy, unleavened lives that lift high the name of this Passover lamb. May our celebration of this not simply be a scheduled event, like a Passover or a communion on the first Sunday of a month, but rather than a scheduled event, may it be the very DNA in the overflow of our lives. So the, the people of God they observe communion as it's connected, the promises going back from the beginning of the Bible. But next, we need to ask, we need to answer this. Why do the people of God need it? Why do we need it? Well, if you, if you have uh, uh, an opportunity, move forward a couple letters in our scriptures here to 1 Corinthians 10. So as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 10, let me just say, it is possible in our minds to understand why we observe communion, yet still think it is largely, largely unimportant in the scope of all things that the Christian life entails. Sure, I get it. We observe it. It was in instituted by Jesus. But, but should I really feel like I need it? Should I be eager to observe it? Should I value it? Should I long for it? Should you long for communion? The short answer is yes. And I'd like to point out two reasons why I believe the scripture calls us not only to observe it, but to see our desperate need of it as often as we observe it. And let me just say here as an aside, as it relates to church history, I don't know if there's a period in church history where We've misunderstood some of the major concepts of the local church, especially as it relates to ordinances, uh, as we find in our current American context. And I say that because most of church history, the pulpit wasn't center. The communion table was. For most of church history, didn't, didn't have communion once a month. It was every week. For most of church history, communion, the Lord's Supper, was seen as a desperate need for the Christian life. You know, 
we often think of, when we think of what we need in our Christian life, we, we think very individualistic, right? I, I need uh, my sermon jam. Do, do people do that still? You know, they, they'll go on YouTube, they'll, they'll, they'll watch a sermon and it's put to music. Okay, maybe not. I, I need my devotional time. I need, you know, they have t-shirts, coffee and Jesus. You know, I, I, that's what I need. Well, the early church, throughout church history, what they needed, what they longed for, was communion. So actually, Lakewood, we're the odd ones as it relates to church history at large. But let me point out two reasons why uh, we need it uh, from Paul here in 1 Corinthians 10. Just two verses. Read with me, please, verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. There's a lot here. Let me unpack it first by pointing us this way. First, we need communion because it unifies us in Christ. And, you know, even I told this to the first service, I, I don't think unify is a strong enough word. Uh, I couldn't think of anything better. I did have someone come up to me afterwards and say, maybe a better word is uh, it bonds you to Christ. It cements you to Christ. It, it's, it's a unifying, inseparable connection. What, what needs to be clear is that it is faith and faith alone, in Christ alone, that unifies and connects us to Jesus. If you simply come here and you sip a cup and you eat a cracker, nothing magical will happen. There is nothing special about the elements of bread and juice, but there is this phrase, participation, that shows up in verse 16. What exactly does that mean? When we take communion, what are we participating in? Well, this word shows up 19 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 15 times in his letters. And it can be translated, participation, it can be translated as fellowship, partnership, sharing, taking part of, communion, contributing. What we see is that our participation in verse 16 is at a base level, a minimum, it is a tangible reminder of an ongoing intimacy that faithful followers of Christ have with Jesus who is in us and with us. See, Paul makes an illusion that spiritually, in communion, there's something, there's some kind of participation going on. Something going on with Christ when you take these elements. He is with us as we remember. Now, the event of a corporate body observing communion is meant to be a remembrance, a tangible one, of our relationship with Jesus. So we come corporately as a family to have what we call a family meal. We come as sinners. We come with baggage, past hurts, current crises perhaps, moral failure, weaknesses, and we come with much more. 
communion is a kind gift to you and I. Because like the people of God, in every generation before us, we are not a remembering people. We are a forgetful people. Can we admit that it's too easy for God, His promises, and eternal realities just to seem far off and distant in our day-to-day life? Perhaps we just merely make some kind of a mental ascent to them? Or can we admit, like jelly roll, we need something to ground us? We need hope? We need communion because it is a physical, tangible reminder that the gospel of Jesus is true. I am forgiven in Christ. He really did die and suffer God's wrath. He really did rise again to new life and secure a new life for me. He really is here with me now and will be with me this week. Just as real as the bread is as it goes down your throat and the juice as it touches your lips, so real is the gospel in your fellowship with him. It has been said that communion is a converting ordinance, meaning there will be many who see through God's people observing communion, there will be people who see their need to be born again, to have a new heart, to have forgiveness, to put their faith and trust in the gospel of Christ. So whether you are a child, kids listen up, or you are an adult, whether you grew up in church or you are here as a first-time visitor. Communion shows believers and unbelievers alike that they need to have a fellowship, an intimacy, a participation with Jesus. The argument has been made that communion is a remembrance. But it's not simply a remembrance. It is a spiritual refreshment of the Spirit of God that confers in your spirit that you belong to Him. That grace, yes, again, this week is true and available for you. I mean, haven't you had just one of those weeks and you just feel like an absolute failure in the Christian life? where your Christian performance was just terrible, and then you show up on a Sunday and you just feel like you're going through the motions? You ever showed up on one of those Sundays? Is that this for you today? Okay, I'm not the only one then. Well, there's a sense in which, in God's grace, we come on those Sundays and communion is a reminder of my unity, my bonding, my participation with Christ. Grace is true for me, not just when I said yes to Jesus way back when, but it's true for me today in light of my week. I need that. We need that. We need communion. But there's a second reason we need communion. The second reason we need communion is because it softens us towards one another. Will you you look again at verse 17 with me? Because there is one bread, we who are many 
are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. There is something really helpful about communion. It forces us to remember that we are all one together in Jesus. Now, if you were to keep reading into chapter 11, Paul addresses this as an issue when it comes to communion. Paul, he comes in with a heavy hand because many in this church were forgetting the oneness of the body of Christ. There were factions in the Corinth church. Some would eat individually without sharing, and some were even getting drunk on the wine. Paul instructs them to wait for each other, to examine themselves, and to consider their unity in Jesus. Now, the way we practice communion here, it would take many crackers to stuff yourself. And I don't want to imagine how many little cups of juice you'd have to down to get drunk, but it'd be a lot. We may not fall into those specific traps here at Lakewood. But we do have other traps. Have you and I fallen into the trap? Are we under the impression that communion or even baptism is about us? That I mean, that it's an individual event? That it's about you personally? Sure, individuals are the ones observing these things, but it's not done just in participation with Jesus, our text says. Verse 17 says it's done in community. With communion specifically, there is one bread, and we who are many are one body. Now notice here and in our other passage, we aren't instructed to have communion by ourselves. But with the body of Christ. And we are fish who don't know we're wet, right? We are so individualistic in our culture and even, yes, in our church that it's easy for us to have an inward focus when we come to the communion table. But we need communion because it does soften us towards one another. So just think for a moment how that may change your personal interactions. So there's someone here that you have a fractured relationship with. There's someone here that maybe doesn't meet your preferences. There's someone here where just temperamentally you're you're just off from one another. There's someone here, if you're just flat out honest, (laughs) I don't like you. We have those thoughts. And what communion does as you partake of it, as you are feasting on the promises and the work of Christ, You look around a room and you see other broken, imperfect, flawed individuals clinging to those same promises. That changes the game a little bit, doesn't it? Communion is meant to bring unity and health to a church. Communion is meant to soften us. So as we take communion, we look to the person to our side and we say, My preferences don't matter. We're in this together. My dislike of their decision here, that doesn't matter. We're in this together. We're a body. We're a family. We're in Christ. So, my friends, allow communion to spur your thoughts today and through the week. 
toward Christ and toward one another. Because faithful followers of Christ, they observe and they need communion. You need it. We observe it because Jesus is the lamb that brings us into this new covenant relationship. And we need it because it reminds us of our unity, our bonding, our, our, our cementing in with Christ. And it reminds us of our love that we should have for one another. We are one 